Can we just give her a hand one more time? Uh, I want you to know how special that is. Uh, we have an entire deaf community and culture that goes here. And uh, oftentimes we will have deaf people that come early and will watch our worship service. And then they will interpret for us. So she's actually feeling all that music and interpreting that for you guys. And so it's really, really special. Um, yeah. Very cool. Very cool. Welcome to Kesed. My name is Danny. If uh, you're just joining us online and you're wondering what's going on, uh, we, have an, we had an interpreter that uh, fully enjoyed that Metallica opening, uh, one of our deaf interpreters, and uh, it, was, it was a beautiful thing. Um, I want to explain, if you're new or if you're just joining us uh, on the stream, that uh, we're in a series right now called Melodia, and the whole idea of the series is that we take different pieces of music as different as possible from each other, and we play them with this idea that they represent a certain group or a certain worldview or a certain political view or a certain view on the virus or a certain view on mass, whatever it is, that it represents sort of this something that's different than you that is valid in and of itself just because it is. And we're talking about how this is so important for us to love one another as, as brothers and as sisters in Christ, that we see each other's melodias as different as, a, as our own. I mean, we had a, a service a few weeks ago when we opened with the Toy Story song, uh, You've Got a Friend in Me, and now here we are a month later opening with Metallica's Enter Sandman, which, which by the way, took me 20 years to get that to be my opener uh, in ministry. 20 years for that to make sense. And people were like, yeah, okay, that makes sense. Wait till you see what happens five years from now. It's all, it's all in the plan. So let me give you a little bit of song history uh, about this song 
Uh, but before I do, let me just ask how many people you would say this is my jam? Raise your hand if this is your jam. Yeah? Okay, good. Good. And how many people, be honest, you're just like, absolutely not. This is not my jam. Don't know why it's in church. What is going on? I'm just here visiting my daughter. I'm going to be praying for you all, but I'll never come back. Yeah? Yeah? No? Okay. A little bit of song history. The song is, as I said, called Enter Sandman. It's a song by American heavy metal band Metallica. It is the opening track and lead single from their self-titled fifth album released in 1991. The single reached number 16 on the U.S. Billboard Hot 100 and achieved platinum certification for more than one million copies shipped in the United States alone. It ended up spurring sales of over 30 million copies for Metallica and propelling Metallica to worldwide popularity. If you do a quick Google search of the lyrics, uh, the artists themselves say the lyrics deal with the concept of nightmares. It also deals with this idea of fear, fear of sleep, fear of nightmares, fear of death, fear of the evils of the world, fear of monsters, and of course, fear of the unknown. The opening lines are, we sleep with one eye open, gripping your pillow tight. And this idea that fear is this all-consuming thing that can come out of nowhere is uh, really what the song is talking about. Uh, lastly, if you're a baseball fan, you'll know that Enter Sandman has become a go-to for closers in the ninth inning. The consensus has been that it conveys to batters something to fear, warning you're about to get put to sleep, the Sandman is coming. So what I want to do today is I want to talk about fear. I want to talk about fear from a psychological standpoint, what it is, not just what the church has made it, but what it, what it really is, what the Bible says it is. And then I want to read to you a story in the Bible with your hopefully fresh and new understanding of fear. So here's kind of a base understanding of fear from a psychological standpoint. In its simplest form, most psychologists say fear is that which makes us afraid. So this is just its, it's very lowest base form. And what that's really stating is that what you're afraid of, you are afraid of just because it is. It's not necessarily something scary maybe to somebody else, but to you it is. Or maybe something scary to somebody else is scary to them, but not to you. For instance, uh, this is a picture of my four-year-old Elena. She's now 17, and uh, she's my youngest daughter. And Elena, for a while, had a fear of spiders. And it was kind of strange because I don't know if you know this or not, and I'll, I'll have this put up on the screen and then we'll go back to Elena, but we're all born with only two innate fears, the fear of falling and the fear of loud noises. Those are the only two fears that you actually are born with. All other fears, like Elena's, are learned. So Lainey has this three-month period when she's four years old that she's afraid of spiders. Now, my wife and I are not afraid of spiders, so we were like, yeah, whatever. We'll just be good parents and support her. And one night she had a, a particularly scary dream that she said spiders were in her room and they were on the ceiling and she was crying. And so I was like, you know what? I'm going to be a good father, like my good, good father. I'm going to scoop her up and carry her into my room and I'm going to hold her tight. And I'm going to enjoy the fact that I am such a good dad. And so I brought her into our room and Aaron's like, what's going on? And I'm like, she's having a bad dream about spiders on the ceiling. It's silly. It's fine. So we're laying in our room. I'll never forget this. And it was one of those really uh, you know, like full moon nights where you can still clearly see in the room, but it's dark. And we're laying there, and I was looking at Elena and her little face, and she's kind of, you know, trying to get tired. And, and I'm sitting there, and I can see Aaron on the other side of the pillow looking. And we had like this really special family bonding moment where I'm like this amazing dad protecting my daughter from her spider nightmares. And my wife's like, you're such a good dad. And I was thinking, I am such a good dad. <laughs> it was just this really special thing for me. And then all of a sudden, Elena like starts looking. 
I feel her, and I see her look. And so I start looking, and then Aaron starts looking, and all of a sudden she just goes, they're coming. <laughs> and now her fear was my fear. I immediately turn on all the lights. I'm looking everywhere. I'm like, maybe there are spiders in our house. I don't know. Be gone, spiritual forces. Like, I'm just, I'm so tripped out that I slept the rest of the night as her father, cowardly, with all the lights on in the room. My wife still brings it up to this day. I'm like, listen, when somebody goes straight poltergeist on you, you, you turn the lights on, okay? She was afraid, and then it made me afraid, and that's kind of how fear works. It's, it's something that hits you, what it hit, how it hits you, but if you're not careful, it can spread and hit other people. From a biology standpoint, fear is a complex term with many ways of interpretation. Fear is, biologists say, what links sets of stimuli to patterns of behavior. Fear is what links sets of stimuli to patterns of behavior. Remember that statement. I'm going to come back to it. This means what ties together all instances of fear within our lives is an awareness based on the raw material available that danger is near or possible, and so emotions emerge from non-emotional ingredients. You survey a situation, you imagine how the situation could harm you or your loved ones, and your body instantly becomes fearful. Now, I want to be uh, careful about the type of fear we're talking about today because there is a, a sort of fear that the church usually preaches about that's a healthy fear. It's a, it's a good fear. This, uh, this kind of fear is not bad. In fact, this kind of fear is essential for our survival and often should be followed as a means of protection. This healthy fear often moves us toward uh, taking beneficial actions in our lives and it can help us avoid unnecessary risks and unnecessary situations. This is the common, what I would call, church fear or fear of the Lord, that you recognize God's so powerful and you're so, uh, you know, weak and in need, and you're like, wow, I really need him, and, and I recognize the, the greatness of God. And so I, I want to I be careful that, uh, that we aren't thinking about that kind of fear because that's generally what most of us have heard sermons about, and that's not what I want to talk about. I want to talk about that raw ripping unhealthy fear, that fear that becomes an overwhelmingly disturbing force of the human mind. And I also want to be aware that I'm not just talking about chronic fear. Now, some of you, you're hopefully leaning forward or maybe you're leaning way back because you deal with this a lot and it manifests itself in anxiety or depression or struggle of some kind and you know deep down inside it's just that you're afraid. Others of you, you might not deal with fear on a daily basis, so you could think, well, I don't know if this sermon's for me. I mean, I'm just, I don't deal with any of that stuff. But you have and continue to will have episodes where fear does grip you, even if just for a moment, and that's important for you because there's some lessons to be learned inside of it. So let's look at this unhealthy fear. The unhealthy fear in our lives, that chronic fear or that, that immediate sort of grip you by the neck fear, uh, has the power to sway distort and rupture the conventions of the human psyche. Overwhelming fear is a prominent component of a life that has been knocked off its feet with tragedy, surprise, and remorse. And it rarely actually is stated as fear. When I spend time with people in, a, in my pastoral counseling or time with people in crisis, a lot of time they'll have all these other things that are going on in their world, like, oh, this is out of control, or this is so unknown, or this. But when you really sit with them in conversation and boil down what it is they're experiencing at their deepest level, it's fear. It's this fear that they aren't going to survive whatever it is 
that they have been stimulated in their mind, and so it creates this emotion from this non-emotional place. In 2018, Chapman University Survey of America survey did a study around the Americas. I'm going to start over. In 2018, Chapman University did a survey involving Americans' top five fears. So this is what they are. The top five fears of America in 2018. The first one is fear of government officials. <laughs> Everybody's like, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Scary. I'm with this sermon now. Where is he going with this? The next one was fear of pollution of oceans, rivers, and lakes. The next one was fear of pollution of drinking water. The fourth one was fear of not having enough money for the future. And the fifth one is fear of a loved one becoming seriously ill. The last ones uh, that kind of got compiled to make the list, other fears were including global warming, high medical bills, extinction of plants and animals, and fear of cancer. When you ask people what they're afraid of, there is kind of these rhythms and these things. And they're, they're, you know, you would say disease, and I don't know if you would think of it as a fear. You would think of it as disease or as, as taking a loved one from you. But the emotion that gets kind of packed in with all of these things is fear. Dr. Mary D. Mahler, an associate professor and coordinator of a psychiatric mental health doctor of nursing practice program, commented in an interview on the significance of fear in our society. And this is what she said about how fear impacts people based on her studies. We are bombarded on a daily basis, both from a visual and auditory standpoint, with bad breaking news. I want to pause right there. Have you ever heard breaking news related to something good? Like, when's the last time it was like, breaking news? Everybody's going to make more money this year. Breaking news, life's going to be better this year. Breaking news, we've done a great thing. It's always breaking news, and your body goes, ugh. And then it's this terrible thing that you're trying to figure out whether it impacts you or someone you love, and then you brace for the next bad breaking news. When talking with people, she says, there seems to be an increasing overarching sense of doom and waiting for the other shoe to fall because of this. Everything seems to have a negative spin from the weather to education to finances and the stock market to healthcare and of course to politics. This has set up a sense of uncertainty and generalized angst in our world and community which translates into worry which if not handled well translates into fear for many, many individuals. She says this, and I'll put the quote on the screen. Unchecked, this fear can cause headaches to become migraines, an upset stomach to become gastroesophageal reflux disease, muscle aches to become fibromyalgia, body aches to become chronic pain, general nervousness to become panic attacks, and the list goes on. This is driving home the point that unmanaged fear, even if you haven't named it fear, has the power to change our bodies, minds, behavior, and relationship. And so spending time being curious about what you're deeply afraid of, even though you've named it something else, is really important, not just so you can learn to handle it, so that your body can become healthier than it is, and so that your relationships can become stronger than they are. This is why I want to talk about this, because not only does it have all these beautiful things about it, it also directly impacts over and over and over again how we love one another. And I want to show you how. By the way, just for what it's worth, if you're thinking like, well, I know the Bible says a lot of fear nots. No, the Bible actually says, you can look this up, 
It says fear not or something like fear not, addressing fear 365 times. It has a fear not for every single day of the year. That's an important thing to just note as you are kind of going on your spiritual journey. God does not want you and I to live afraid, and it's clear that the world does. That the breaking news is the more that he can distract you, the more this world can pull you into its arms, the more that you can rely on, on, on self-medication and ways in which you, you uh, numb the fear in your life, the ways in which you, you try to, try to um, distract yourself from all the things that make you afraid, the more that you can become like everybody else and just drone your life away. And that is not what the Lord wants. As a matter of fact, along with all these fear nots, God constantly encourages us to wake up. Awake, O sleeper, he says. Wake up. I think sleeping, right, through your life is kind of nightmarish because you are responding to everything in your world as if it's real when sometimes it is, but sometimes it's just imaginary spiders on the ceiling. And people around you that love you begin to be afraid and your community gets, begins to be afraid and all of a sudden everybody's living their life with the lights on and not actually resting in the Lord. That was pretty good. That didn't come in any other talk that I had so far, but we should write that one down because that, that went full circle, a little bow on it. <laughs> I liked it. So here's the thing. <laughs> here's what I want to do. Now that you have a better understanding of what fear is and how it operates, I want to read to you a common story from this kind of hopefully healthier view of fear. We're going to start with probably one of the most uh, uh, fearsome one of the most bold, one of the most courageous people in the Bible, and that's the Apostle Paul. The Apostle Paul was a man who was like on fire for God, but prior to that, he was actually on fire against God. He was attacking the church, the, the living church, the movement of Jesus, and he was doing it with so much passion and boldness and fire that he was actually trying to find people to drag them to jail so that they could be burned uh, because of their heresy and because of their beliefs. And suddenly it says that Jesus shows up and he confronts Paul and he says, why are you persecuting me? And, and Paul realizes who he's, you know, dealing with and his heart changes and he goes blind. And he spends this time in the dark kind of crawling around and thinking and trying to figure out what it is his life has been about. And then a man shows up and prays for him and in the name of Jesus returns his sight and awakens him, if you will, back to my earlier illustration, and then sends him out into the world to awaken other people. So he takes some of the energy of who he used to be. Because, by the way, everything you are that, that probably has cost you a lot, those things unwarped, those things untangled, those things untethered are actually really beautiful things. I've shared many, many times that... Uh, this particular person was not very easy for my mother to raise because I love to engage in debates with her, and, and it, was, it wasn't easy for her. It, I would, I would like give my three points, and I would explain why it's wrong, and then I would say, and as I wrap up this talk on why I shouldn't be grounded, I just need you. <laughs> I, and, and, it, and, you know, bless her heart, it, it worked out because God used that particular uh, gift for a good thing. There are so many things in people's lives that have damaged them that are really just things that are tangled up, that are actually beautiful things. And Paul's courage, Paul's desire to make things right, even though he was damaging the church before he knew Jesus, it's still in him. And now it's a desire for Jesus to make things right. And so he's traveling around doing that. He's going to all these crazy sketch places. And he's walking in like 
to their church services, their pagan church services. He's walking in to their marketplaces, like, like where you can be arrested. He's going to pagan cities, and he's listening to their theology, and then he's like, no, nah, let me tell you the truth. Let me tell you about the real God. And he's just boldly and courageously doing this stuff for Jesus. And then it says he gets to Athens. Chapter 17, verse 16, if you have a Bible. If not, the verses are on the screen. It says, now while Paul was waiting for them at Athens, here it is, his spirit was provoked within him as he saw that the city was full of idols. So he's walking around, he's listening to God, and God like surges in his chest, and he's like, you're gonna do something about this today. And Paul gets emboldened, and there is no fear in him. And he walks in, and he begins to talk to them about these gods that they're serving. Verse 17, so he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the devout persons and in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there, every day debating, every day con confronting, every day going into the scary place. Verse 22, so Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, said, men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription to the unknown God. So let's go back to verse 22. So Paul standing in the midst of the Areopagus. This is something known as Mars Hill. This is a very, very holy pagan place. And he's standing in this holy place, and he sees all these people, and he looks around, and he sees all these idols. I mean, all things directly opposing to the one true God. There's a God of fertility. There's a God of wealth. There's a God of strength. There's just God after God after God, and he's looking around, and the Holy Spirit, it already says, has quickened him, has prompted him, and so he's sitting there like, okay, I'm just gonna, let's battle. I'm gonna put my gloves on, right? This is what all of us imagine as Christians, and I'm gonna get in there, and I'm gonna knock some people out for Jesus, and then he comes across this little idol in the back. That's how I imagine it. And it has the words on it, to the unknown God. And I believe everything inside Paul changed. He looks through this space. He looks at the faces of these people. And he realizes something very, very important. Yes, they were worshiping false gods. Yes, they were making evil sacrifices and teaching dark doctrine. But Paul realized something behind all of it. And it is that they were afraid. They were raised to feel that they would be destroyed at any second if they didn't cower to the, to the beings above. They were raised to make offerings in order to pay for debts or secret sins or, or thoughts they wish they didn't have or mistakes they've made. And so they built this holy place in order to do all that they could in order to protect themselves from these scary gods that were going to destroy them. They were so afraid, as a matter of fact, that they even had an extra altar present in case they had missed a god who might be angry at them. And I think his heart broke in that space. I think he saw in them something he saw in himself. This is a really, really special place that we're sitting right now. And it relates multi-directional. It relates to you in the room and how you've approached God and how you've lived out your faith. But it also relates to how you have treated other people who've had behavior that just didn't make any sense to you. Their melodia was just too loud and too big and too headbanging. And you kind of judged them a little bit without really understanding that at the core of it, they were afraid. Remember the quote I asked you to remember, fear is what links sets of stimuli to patterns of behavior. Paul walking around that mountain was seeing patterns of behavior, and it was fearful. And they were trying to gain approval 
This key understanding of fear is so very important for us as Christians when it comes to loving one another. Philippians 2, 3 says, Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than, your, than yourself. This isn't relating necessarily always to actions like, oh, please go first or always turn the other cheek. Those things are important. That's not what this is relating to. This is related to empathy, that you see other people as valuable, that you see them as hurting, that you see them for who they really are. Yeah, their country music melodia just bugs you from the beginning. And you're like, oh. Or yeah, their classic music melodia feels, you know, pretentious and who do they think they are? No one even listens to that stuff anymore. Their lifestyle just feels way out of balance, especially with the church lifestyle, right? Because we have the main melodia, Maranatha. Right? We've got the big music. We've got the real deal. That's why this series was so important because it mixes in, it forces us to sit together and go, ooh, I don't know if I like multi-generational church because we've got grandparents with, with their kids, with their kids. We've got some people that have great-grandkids all the way down going to the same church, and they all kind of give and take to be in the family. But you don't have to like it. You just have to help understand it and have empathy for people, putting other people above yourself, and that's exactly what Paul does. Empathy for others with obviously unhealthy or dysfunctional melodias, so empathy for others that have these sorts of patterns, often finds its foundation in realizing how afraid they really are. I did a funeral for a man in our church just this last week. And uh, he greeted, actually, probably a lot of you for, for many, many months. He actually came with this building uh, and, that original, and that original congregation that's still here. This man wrestled a lot with mental illness. And from the outside, at the funeral, people got up and shared how awkward he was and how uncomfortable sometimes he would make you because he just, his melodia was so different. But he wrestled with such intense depression that he would often uh, feel as if he needed to pay penance for the things he did and he would force himself to be homeless in spite of having a place to live and a job. They found him about three and a half weeks ago or so under a bridge and he had died by himself. And yet at the funeral, we had a nice group of people that got here. And that funeral lasted over two, I think, two hours with people sharing how he blessed them, how he helped them, where, where he showed up in their lives. And yes, how it was awkward. And yes, sometimes it was strange. But as you got to hear more and more about his melodia, you got to understand more and more about how he came to this place mentally. And my heart was broken for this, this song that he lived all by himself that eventually played out underneath a bridge here in Vancouver. Now, the blessed story is that, that it, he it was a strong Christ follower and that we, of course, know that, that his body and mind is healed and that he is in heaven, but there is still a beautiful lesson to be learned inside knowing that other people's melodias don't always appear what they, what they look like under first circumstance or even serving alongside them in church for a couple years. We have to give space for people. We have to have empathy for them. Paul the Apostle had immense empathy for these people, so much so that what he says next is customized and built for them right there in that space. And it's just beautiful. That sentence again, I found the altar. This one right over here, and I'm sure they gathered around this one. It says to the unknown God. 
He says, what therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you. He says, let me introduce him to you. This is the God who made the world and everything in it. Being Lord of heaven and earth does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind and breath and everything. I love that phrase right there because he lets them know you don't have to do anything for him. He's pretty awesome. He goes on and says, And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place. And then he says this phrase. Remember what I said earlier? Paul was blind. He sees these people struggling, searching, being spiritually curious. This is a phrase we use a lot here at Kesson. We're, we're welcoming to spiritually curious people. You don't have to know Jesus to go here. You may meet him if you keep coming. But you don't have to know him. That's just fine. This is what he said. That these, that these people that God built should seek God in the hope that they might feel their way toward him and find him. Not that they would see him and go running. Not that they would build a tower and stand atop or build a wonderful empire and say, look what I did for you, or make a sacrifice. That they would grope, that they would feel their way toward him in the dark. And then he goes, but listen, for those of us who felt their way toward him, because Paul was one of those people, he, he sees these people like him feeling their way toward God with all these idols and this one unknown. And then he says this, but he is actually not far from each of us. For in him we live and move and have our being, as even some of your own poets have said, for we are indeed his offspring. This is probably, this phrase, for we are indeed his offspring, probably, I'm going to say one of the most empathetic things I've ever heard a person say to a seeking person, because this is actually Paul the Apostle quoting pagan scripture. He's using their words. They're searching, their desire. He's actually using their brokenness. I said earlier, if you were born to speak, you're a problem child for your parent. If you were born to protect people, you might, you might have been somebody that got into a lot of fights because you don't like bullies, but really your job was to protect people. But without you honing that, then all of a sudden you just end up being a bully yourself. Maybe you were born with a huge intellect and you can just retain all kinds of information, but now you walk around and you're a know-it-all. Maybe you were born to be overly loving. You're just so nurturing. But because you never built into that, now you're somebody that has no boundaries. And so you're exhausted all the time, and the people you should be really pouring into, you don't have any energy left for them. I could go on and on and on and on. But this idea that Paul leaned into their scripture is what I'm telling you about God leaning into your story and saying, but I can still do something with you. And he says to them, indeed, you already know you're his offspring. Now, you didn't know which God that scripture belonged to. I'm here to tell you today it belonged to mine. And it can belong to yours, for there is only one true God. He leans into their stories. I'll put it on the screen. Paul loved them by approaching them not so much from a place of courage, but as from a place alongside their fears. He didn't get up on the mountain, grab out his Bible sword, and start cutting people's heads off till all that was left were other cowering religious people saying, I guess there's only one God. What do we do to make him happy? He stepped inside their fears. He used their words. He used their strengths. He used their curiosity. He used their devotion. He used all these beautiful things that made them them, that from the outside would make them just the worst people as a Christian to be around. 
And he leaned into their story, and he saw that it was fear that was stimulating them to behave this way, and he loved them anyways. We may even say he went and found them within their fears. Who's that sound like? That sounds a lot like what Jesus does with me. He finds me within my fears. He finds me within my story. And I don't have to change a lot. All I have to do is turn around and recognize he is the unknown God. He is the one I've been missing. And from that place, I feel my way toward him, and he grabs hold of me because he's been there the entire time. But this is where it gets super personal. I'm going to take like two minutes and just punch you right in the soul. Listen, it was, it's metal week, so this is, this is, the Holy Spirit's just going to scream into your soul for a second, I hope. Some of you, the reason you don't have any empathy, the reason that you struggle with people so different from you, the reason that this sermon is just kind of bugging you is because you don't have any empathy for yourself. You hold yourself to such a standard, and all those mistakes you've made, or this place you're at in life and you, versus where you thought you would be, that you are, you are hard to yourself. And so, of course, you are hard to other people. And Paul, he didn't do that. And he was as legit as they came. I believe much of Paul's empathy for others and their fears came first from an empathy for himself and his own. When it came to having empathy for himself, nobody said the things that Paul said about him. 1 Timothy 1.15, this is what he says. Look at these words. Think about this. This is, a, this is a legit man of God. More scripture written by him than anybody else. And he says, the saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the foremost. He says, I'm just a wreck. I'm just, I'm missing so much and so many pieces, and yet God keeps showing up in my life. He keeps using the stories and the, and the, the self-righteousness and the vigilance and the passion. He just keeps using it to bless people around him. Romans 7:15. he says, for I do not understand my own actions. This is Paul talking about himself. For I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. He says, I want to accomplish great things for God, and if I'm honest, for myself as well. But I want to do it for God, but I battle with this person that I am. And I build these organizations and these churches and this, have this legacy. And it's like, it's all for Jesus, but it's a little bit for me. Back and forth he goes in this dance where he sees his own humanity as part of the story. He is a new creature, but along with that new creature, as we as Christians like to say, comes that old creature that slowly is dying, but it is still very much alive. And he has empathy for himself, and because he has empathy for himself, he has empathy for others. Because he has empathy for his own failings, he has empathy for others. It becomes clearer and clearer in scriptures that the reason others behave the way they do and so can have immense empathy for them starts with you understanding why you do the stuff you do. And if you want to really get into it, you got to start by admitting that you actually got stuff. And if you are like legit, like you are squared away and nobody has anything on you. Like there's nobody who's like, eh. Yeah. Like this is where my wife and my close friends and my daughter, that story gets a little bit, you know, touchy for me because they all know me outside of this. I've said this before. This is as good as it gets for Danny. Okay, I got like my sweater on, my pants, did my hair today. I'm prepped. 
I know what I'm doing. I feel in control. Now, out there, you might be like, man, that's, that looks legit. It just goes downhill from here. It does. It really does. And the people who know me know this. And so I'll say stuff, and they're like, yeah, you don't believe that, do you? And I'm like, why? Well, no, you're right. I had a, an episode for about three months, about two and a half years ago, where um, I dealt with just a little bit of rage. It would come out of nowhere. Yeah, like, like actual rage. Like people would be late for meetings, and I'd be like, what's the deal, man? Now, my face was fairly calm, but inside I was like hot. Like, don't you take this serious? Is the kingdom of God not important to you? It was bad. My assistant sat me down. My wife sat me down. A couple of my kids sat me down. Finally, my wife goes, you know, I think something's wrong with you. I said, I think something's wrong with you. <laughs> That's my response to everything. You know, I'm the one on stage. I'm easy to critique. Cheap shot, cheap shot. And she's like, no, no, this doesn't seem normal. I think you should go to the doctor. I was like, I, I, don't, I don't want to. She's like, please go to the doctor. So I did. I go to the doctor. They do a blood test. Come to find out, some of you know I had uh, cancer as a kid, kind of a prolonged cancer that, that, that just messed me up uh, in my, you know, from like a three to about 14, and because of that and the chemo and the radiation I received, it messed up uh, my pancreas, and because of that, I found out I had type 2 diabetes pretty dang bad, and I would have these sugar swings that would just throw my world off and come to find out I was just super frustrated because I needed the Snickers, like the commercial. <laughs> I never really put that together until right now, like the commercial. But once the behavior was tied to the stimulus, once I was able to have empathy for myself, go back and make amends among my team and my wife and my kids, suddenly I still felt those feelings, but I had empathy for myself that, you know what, I might need to take a minute. I probably shouldn't be this upset by this. And I get my meter and I check my blood and I do what's appropriate and I have empathy and I take care of myself and therefore I take better care of people. This is what some of us don't do. We rage or we judge or we preach, or we teach, or we punish, or we discipline, and it's all tied to this fear stimulus that's going on inside our bodies, inside our world, inside our spirituality, tied to stuff that we haven't even taken time to own. You've got to start by going to the doctor, by asking him, where am I off? Where do I need to reset? Where do I need to expose and be more authentic? Either way, in closing, Paul teaches us to be aware of both our own and others' fear, therefore choosing to be fearlessly empathetic. Because remember in the end, because of Paul's testimony and teaching, those listening could move from being fearful priests of the unknown to fearless priests of the living God. And that's what the gospel is all about. It's all about being what you were, being what you are, and knowing there is more yet to come. But you've got to start by being authentic with where you're at. It's the only way you're going to be able to be like Jesus, go onto those mountains, see all kinds of wrong happening around you, and go, I know what's going on here. Step into people's stories like Jesus did when he put on humanity and love them in the midst of their storm. This is what we're called to do. This is what church is. This is why we're here. There's all kinds of melodias that make up this house of conversation, and it's about time that we start loving them. It's about time we start loving ourselves and bring all that worship and praise to God. Amen? Amen. So here's what I want to do. I'm going to have the worship team come out. 
Um, I gave them a song for you. And uh, this song is important for you to take some time and reflect before your uh, minds get caught up in your busy day. And I have two questions for you during this worship song that I want you to ask. The first one is this. Where in your life, where in your life are you a priest of the unknown? Where are you worshiping something out of fear that's not really God? It's not really his scripture. It's not really his church. It's just something that you picked up along the way that you were holding dear, whether it's, I don't even want to put words to it. The Holy Spirit's going to give you what that is, I believe. Whatever it is, where are you a priest of the unknown? Next, where in your life are you being called to be a priest of the living God? Who are you being called to speak into? Who are you being called to touch? Who are you being called to love? Who are you being called to reach out to? In spite of their behavior, who are you being called to see through the fog into what it is that's causing them to be afraid and then lean into their strengths and so remind them of the love of Jesus. Those are the two things I want you to, to think about. As we sing, as we lift up our, our worry and our anxiety, our depression, our concern, our lack of knowing about what's going to happen next, and as we give God our praise. So would you stand on your feet for me? Let's just pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this opportunity to bring you our fear. For some of us, we're going to name it for the first time. For others, we're just going to be honest that we have it. For others, we're going to feel a sense of calling to go out and reach and, and grab other people that you've put inside our circle. Either way, God, we're all just going to bring this worship to you. We're going to raise our voices. We're going to sing our songs as we continue to be the church you've called us to be. We love you. We praise you. And all of God's people said, amen. Let's just sing it out for him.
take off every chance.